Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. On the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community, I'm Sina Bazila-Hickey. And I'm Vinny Damopolito. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Mark Dunley's interview with Rap about elder parole and fair and timely parole bills. Then, Elizabeth E.P. Press speaks with Willow about the fight to free Alex Stokes. Later on, Willie Terry speaks with Miki uh, Khan of the Hamilton Hill Arts Center in Schenectady about Kwanzaa. After that, Bria Barthel gets a list of good books about food from the Bookhouse in Stuyvesant Plaza. Finally, Cena interviews Robert Cooper about why he continues to fo- uh, photograph with film. But first, here are the headlines. The Hoosick Town Board heard mounting opposition to large-scale solar projects in the community at a public hearing on Wednesday night regarding the establishment of a year-long moratorium on any plans. The town of Brunswick recently extended a year-long moratorium by four months until April. The town of East Greenbush in Rensselaer County and Wilton in Saratoga County had moratoriums which have expired after local legislation governing solar projects was enacted. Meanwhile, it was reported that global warming increased by 1.43 degrees Celsius in 2023, just short of the tipping point of 1.5 degrees. A suspect in Wednesday in a Wednesday shooting on Hudson Avenue in Albany was killed in an exchange of gunfire with two state troopers after they pulled his vehicle over and tried to apprehend him as he drove south on the thruway. The United States Postal Service will hold a series of job fairs across the capital region in January. All applicants must be 18 years of age and be able to work weekdays and holidays starting the starting pay for the position is between 16 to 20 dollars an hour. Gary Hughes, a District 2 legislator representing portions of Schenectady, has been elected chair of the Schenectady County Legislature. Democrats hold a 13-2 majority in the legislature. Joanne Cunningham was recently elected chair of the Albany County Legislature. The new mayor of the city of Saratoga Springs has new rules for public comments at council meetings. Speakers must provide their names and addresses on a sign-in sheet and are allotted three minutes to talk with extension per the mayor's prerogative. Other rules included prohibiting, quote, hand clapping, stomping of feet, whistling, making noise, use of use of of profane language or obscene gestures, yelling, or similar demonstrations, end quote. Meetings will include a sergeant-at-arms to maintain order. The rules appear to be aimed at the various protests at council meetings by Black Lives Matter. A requirement for public comment was recently put into the city charter. Several open government advocates objected to several of the new provisions. And that's it for the headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, uh, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call 518-272-2390. Uh, release aging people in prison, also known as RAP, 
is led by formerly incarcerated people and family members of people in prison. They work to end mass incarceration and promote racial, uh, racial justice through the release of the aging people in prison. They recently held a press conference to highlight two key bills, elder parole and fair and timely parole bills. Mark Dunley sat down with Liana Taylor to discuss the effort. We're talking today with Deanna Taylor, who is with the Release Asian People in Prison, basically getting elderly people uh, out, out of prison. And they held a press conference earlier this week uh, to talk about their legislative agenda for 2024. Um, but Tiana, why do you just give us a quick introduction about, you know, what are some of the issues that the release Asian uh, people in prison is about? Yeah, uh, thanks so much for that question, Mark. So the Release Aging People in Prison campaign um, has been around for a little over 10 years. Uh, and it was started by three people, uh, Laura Whitehorn, uh, Mujahed Farid, and Kathy Boudin, all of which have um, had prison sentences where they saw there was a crisis of aging and death behind bars. And so uh, now the RAP campaign is a grassroots advocacy organization. We are led by uh, formerly incarcerated people and their families, and we're fighting for an end to the racist system of mass incarceration in New York State. Now, you know, I always remember because I myself am a senior citizen, you know, the idea that people have been in prison for a very, very long period of time um, and, of course, have changed over that period of time should, you know, get released. And I'm always like, why is this still such a hard issue to pass? So how close did you come at all last year? And there's, you know, as the, as the governor or we're the legislative leaders on this issue. Yeah. So. Over the last couple of years, we have built tremendous support for our two major prior, uh, legislative priorities. That's the elder parole and the fair and timely parole bills. Uh, for each of these bills, we actually have majority support of lawmakers who are ready to vote for these bills once they get to the legislative floor. Uh, we've also just bolstered our support. We um, do grassroots advocacy across the state, talking with constituents, getting people who are directly impacted involved. We've also gotten support from the DAs from the three largest uh, districts in the county or counties in the state, I should say, um, in New York City. Uh, we have a number of victim and survivor advocacy groups um, and anti-gun violence groups that have signed up for our campaign, along with the other 350 uh, other organizations all across New York State who have pledged their support. Um, we've had, you know, the statewide chapter of the NAACP pledge their support. And so uh, what we've seen with the legislative leaders is um, kind of like the political a lack of political will to act. Um, and so last session, we were ready to pass the bills. This session, we're ready to pass the bills. And we really think that we're in a position to actually get that done. Um, and so our main push is just letting leadership know that this is, these are common sense pieces of legislation. It's just re restoring the parole board to its original purpose and allowing people really meaningful opportunities for release that otherwise would not get them at all in their natural lives. And I understand, unfortunately, this has been an issue that is personally impacted upon your family. Um, I guess your father is still incarcerated? Yeah, so my father is incarcerated um, in New York State. 
He has been incarcerated since I was 10 years old. And one thing I can say from the bottom of my heart is that while my father did commit a serious crime and he must be accountable for that, my father is not just his crime. And he has vowed to do everything in his power to actually work on repairing our community by being, you know, someone who interrupts violence and is there to stop harm um, before it happens. And we're really waiting for him, my family, we're really waiting for him to be home um, so that he can just be a positive light for us, but also for the young people in our communities who are missing um, these parental and grandparent figures due to just so much incarceration across the state. And my dad is soon gonna go before the parole board. Um, and without the fair and timely parole bill passed, he, despite all of his accomplishments um, of facilitating victim awareness classes, um, getting two degrees and on his way to his third um, in human services, um, helping multiple incarcerated men um, actually with their parole packets and helped a number of them actually get home um, through, despite the really hard uh, parole board process that the state has right now. And despite all of that, the parole board can hit him simply for the nature of his crime, the one thing that he can never change. So yeah, the fair and timely parole bill, um, as well as the elder parole bill are really close to my heart. And, um, and on top of that, since my dad's incarceration, I've met dozens of incarcerated men um, and women who deserve a shot at release and non-binary people as well. Now, of course, um, you know, so much of our mass incarceration arises out of, you know, racist, you know, criminal justice issues. And just reading your website before is actually the number of elderly people over the last um, 20 years in prison has actually sort of uh, doubled. You know, how has the issue of, you know, trying to, you know, re at least reduce mass incarceration and reduce the, you know, racial bias in our criminal justice system, has that had an impact on your um, advocacy efforts? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the RAP campaign in our some of our previous work, uh, we did work in uh, to basically shift the uh, culture of the parole board in certain ways um, to allow for more release of, of elderly people. Um, and it was because the parole board has this kind of culture of perpetual punishment that leads to a lot of this, um, the aging crisis behind bars. On top of that, we have a history of, you know, draconian prison sentences from the kind of uh, war on crime era, the Pataki era in, in, in this state. And uh, now we have to do a lot of that work to take back the mistakes uh, or, or actions, I should say. I'm not sure that they were mistakes, but the purposeful actions of our uh, state government. And so it really does drive our work. Um, we're in communities who are most impacted by incarceration. We're speaking with the people who are closest to the issue, those that have been left without parents um, and grandparents and community members and someone to feed back into their family um, that's so desperately needed in a lot of our communities. And we also see a tie between this issue of mass incarceration, aging and death behind bars. We see a tie to that to a general lack of resources in our communities. And so when we're calling for these pieces of legislation to start to kind of take back um, 
our communities from a lot of these harmful practices, we realized that with the money that we would save getting people who are ready to come home out of prison, we can feed back into systems that we really, really need, like education, mental health care, and so many other things. Um, and the passage of both of these bills would save the state uh, half a billion dollars um, a year for that. So yeah, these, these bills are really important to that. So we have only two minutes left. So I'm gonna ask you a multiple part question and you can answer that in the last 90 seconds or so. One is, you know, uh, Governor Hochul did very poorly in a recent uh, re-election uh, campaign. A lot of that was the tabloids uh, inflaming the, the concept of, um, you know, crimes on the increase. A lot of that probably had to do actually with more homelessness on the, on, on the street. How is that sort of anti-crime message from the tabloids impacted upon it? And then the second part is if people want more information about how they get involved, how, how you know, to you know, a website, how can they find out more about the campaign? So the way we see it and what, what we've been seeing on the streets is that, you know, even despite uh, kind of the fear mongering that's been going on in the press, um, despite people trying to blame what may have been the repercussions of COVID and a, you know, um, huge recession that we're going through on criminal justice reform. Um, despite all of that, the Democratic Party has kept a supermajority in both houses, has kept all three you know, lines that they have there open with the governor. Um, and so we believe that the public sees through some of this stuff. They understand that uh, this is the right thing to do for our communities. Um, we are trying to get people back home who can actually make our communities safer, be violence interrupters. And uh, even despite all of the, the so much money and time that the other side has put into um, weaponizing criminal justice reform against us. Hit 10 seconds. Know. People want more information? Rapcampaign.com, R-A-P-P, campaign.com. Thank you very much. Tiana Taylor, Release Asian People in Prison, Rap. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. As some listeners might already know, the USA has less than 5% of the global population and more than 25% of the global prison population. And if you would like to learn more about some stories we've covered on social justice um, and other interviews with RAP, that's R-A-P-P, -P, you can go to our website, mediasanctuary.org. This week is the third anniversary of the insurrection at the United States Capitol building in Washington, D.C. That was on January 6th. 2021, when a mob of supporters of then-U.S. President Donald Trump stormed the Capitol in an attempt to keep Trump in power after he lost the 2020 presidential election. Many arrests and sentences have come down related to the January 6th uprising. We now turn to Elizabeth E.P. Press, who sat down with the partner of Alex Stokes, a local man who received a 20-year sentence for allegedly assaulting local Proud Boys who were leading a local Stop the Steal protest in Albany, while their counterparts in D.C. were heavily involved in the insurrection that day. Today we are doing an interview with a person who goes by the name Willow, who is the partner of Alexander Stokes who, if you recall, was charged with felony assault charges 
after allegedly stabbing two members of a far-right Proud Boy group during a confrontation in East Capitol Park in Albany, New York, on the same afternoon that hardcore supporters of former President Trump stormed the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. This was three years ago on January 6th, 2021. Willow, welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine and your first interview about your partner, Alex. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for taking the time to join us here on our program. What do you want to share with our audience about this day? Was I correct in my description of, you know, we saw the video on the Times Union of the security camera footage. There was sort of a brawl that took place in front of the Capitol in Albany. And since then, your partner, Alex Stokes, faced trial and is serving a sentence of some 20 years, correct? Correct. Yeah, The good news here is that um, his appeal is pretty much close to completion and, you know, uh, we're looking pretty hopeful about it. I mean, I can't believe that in a few days it's going to have been three years since this happened in Albany and since this happened in our country. (laughs) That day was horrific. Um, It was hard for so many Americans, so many people locally, but it was definitely very painful for our family, friends, and loved ones, and everyone else that was involved in the protest that day. And it wasn't a large protest. There were some uh, MAGA people, and then there were some other folks around sort of to counter this sort of protest. Were you there yourself that day? I was not. Uh No, I wasn't there that day. There was a Stop the Steal rally going on. And, you know, as we now know, uh, this was happening in every capital city all over the country. And so there were counter protesters there who were standing up to the, the MAGA people that were there. There was a Proud Boy who tased someone in the neck, and that's how that all started. There was coverage of this in the Times Union, like a video essay that sort of like outlines the events of that day. I'm sure you saw this video. I did. Do you feel like that the coverage so far has been accurate or fair? I think certain parts were accurate, but I I think there were many other parts that were not accurate about that day. Certainly not accurate about who Alex is as a person and what was happening with him that day as a journalist being Mm -hmm. there on scene. Yeah, there was, I think, a quote I recall from uh, maybe the judge that a journalist wouldn't show up on scene with a weapon. That Yeah, I do remember that quote. You know, Alex is an artist um, and he had, you know, just recently acquired some land and he had been working on his land. So I think some things got conflated by certain individuals, either when reporting on what happened or sharing their opinions to the press on what happened. So in the end, Alex didn't get the maximum amount of time. He got 20 years. Mm -hmm. 
and he's appealing that, yes. as you said. Yeah. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about what that looks like and what that sort of m- means? His appeals lawyer, Kathy Manley, has done such an amazing job. We are so incredibly grateful for her. Things are laid out there that make us hopeful. There are a lot of issues <laughs> covered <laughs> in this appeal. It's very long. You know, there was a lot of things that happened during trial that that needed to be covered um, in something like this, in a document like this. And I don't have an exact timeline for when we're going to be able to figure this out. But, you know, we're hoping for oral arguments uh, this coming summer. And so if the appeal is successful, what will that mean? There are a number of ways that he could, quote unquote, win. Obviously, we would love a dismissal. <laughs> um, that's that's the hope. Those those are very rare. You know, we're trying to be realistic. So it's two two separate sentences that Judge McDonough decided to have Alex serve consecutively. Um, so it's a twelve year sentence for one and an eight year sentence um, to equal twenty years with five years parole. So it's basically twenty five years in the system altogether. That's that's what was laid out. A possible win could be one of those sentences just being taken away completely and then serving the other sentence all the way through, uh, reducing parole time. You know, it could mean just a reduction overall. It could mean, you know, a new trial. And if that were the case, you know, then he would have to go through the process all over again. Those are the possibilities. Where is Alex serving his sentence right now? He's in Upstate Correctional Facility, which is in Malone, New York. How far away is that from here? Um, it's about three hours and 45 minutes each way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's up by Canada. And how often are you able to go visit him? I try to go there every other weekend if I can. How is he doing <laughs> three years into his sort of... Uh... You know, he, um, he got sentenced uh, on November 17th, 2022. But uh, he ended up where he is now, transfer-wise, in December of 2022. So he's been there a little over a year. He's doing okay. <laughs> he hasn't encountered any problems or issues, thank God, his safety. He's, he's relatively safe as far as prison standards go. You know, he's trying to stay strong, you know, grateful for people who have been supporting him, supporting me, supporting our families. On the daily, he practices guitar. You know, in the summer, he was going out in the yard and trying to be a part of a softball team. You know, just like stuff like that to try to get through it. And what would you like our audience to know about Alex or about your relationship with Alex? Alex is... A very caring person. He is someone that wants happiness for all. He wants equality. He is somebody who he's very artistic. He he loves being with other creatives. He loves he's very thoughtful. He's just somebody who is not what he's been painted out to be, really. I've never actually talked about our relationship before. <laughs> so on a, on a public thing, but I love him very much. And, you know, we, uh, we're just trying to get through this really crazy thing 
together. That is just like absolutely intense. And we're just hoping for the best. To wrap up, there is a vigil and potluck this Saturday, which is probably not by coincidence, January 6th, (laughs) uh, in support of Alex Stokes. Can you tell us about the details of this event? First, we're going to meet in Townsend Park in Albany for a kind of like a candlelight vigil just to reflect on the day itself and to reflect on what happened in Albany that day to everyone involved. And then we're going to go into the fuse box and have a potluck with uh, some poetry by Dead Men's Press, Inc. The band Schenectavoids wrote a song about Alex. We're going to debut the song. Um, Just a time to kind of gather together and reflect and be there for each other and for him. Nice. Willow, and just to follow up on that, you know, you haven't really, you said this is your first interview that you've done, (laughs) and you haven't had a lot of public-facing events. So why now? Honestly, I felt the climate change when Enrique Tarrio was sentenced and put in federal prison. And so I think people's ideas about what really happened that day have been changing. And I'm starting to hear more and more people supporting Alex and they don't understand how it was 20 years and they just, they don't understand what happened at trial. And like, they don't, they, they don't know how this could have happened, you know, especially in Albany. Like they don't know how this result could have possibly occurred. It's very confusing and scary to people. So I think people like want to know more and they want to be able to support Alex in different ways. What time are people gathering at Townsend Park on Saturday, uh, January 6th? Uh, between 4 and 4.30. Great. Bring an instrument, too, if you want to jam. Excellent. Willow, thanks for joining us today on the thanks Hudson Mall. Thanks for Mohawk. having me. Great. And the um, website around Alex Stokes' story is freealexstokes.com. And the Proud Boys organization has been designated a terrorist organization by the Canadian and New Zealand governments. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazilahickey. And I'm Vinny Damopolito. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, W-O-O-S-L-P, 98.9 FM Schenectady, and W-O-O-A-L-P, 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the media, uh, comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Kwanzaa just ended on Monday, January 1st this year, but on December 27th, 2022, roaming labor correspondent Willie Terry attended the Kwanzaa program at the Oakwood Community Center in Troy. And in this segment, we hear uh, about the second day of Kwanzaa that is about self-determination. Yo, this is uh, Willie Terry, a roaming labor correspondent for the Hustle Mohawk uh, magazine. And I'm here today at the Oakwood Community Center in Troy where they're having a Kwanzaa. I have as my guest, and and I'm a special guest, 
And this is one of the originators of the Kwanzaa program com coming into the Capital Region. And I think she's a member of the Capital Region Kwanzaa Coalition, right? Yes. All right, and her name is Mickey Khan. How you doing, Mickey? Hi, doing fine. Thank you for asking me to interview. Mickey, right. yeah. just give me a little history of how things got started and how you got involved. Well, Kwanzaa itself got started in the 60s after the 1966 riots, uh, Watts riots, rebellions, as some people call it. Um, people began to realize that we needed to do things in a different way. We needed to look at our values, at what kind of lives we as a, an African-American community wanted to live. What, what did we want to pass out, pass on to our children? And so Milana Karanga, professor at UCLA, um, invented, put together a Kwanzaa celebration. Now that is very unique and unusual in and of itself because most of the celebrations have come about through religious figures or events, things like that. Um, but this one, it's in our lifetime. We know who invented it, who put it together, and it caught on like water on a thirsty plain. It was really, it really struck a chord in so many people and eventually made its way as a celebration to the East Coast. And um, it was in the late 60s that the Kwanzaa celebration began to occur in the capital region. The Hamilton Hill Art Center, which at the time was under the directorship of my mother, Margaret Cunningham, they were the first to introduce the Kwanzaa celebration to the area. And it caught on. It went on for many years as a one-day celebration, even though it was designed as a seven-day celebration. And some years ago, I don't know the exact year, but Aaron Carter and I got to talking, and Aaron had a vision of seven days of Kwanzaa, which is what it was. Aaron Carter is a community activist and organizer from the Albany region. Yes, yes, he's the director of Ujima Journeys. And so together, we began to think about how we could do Kwanzaa as a seven-day occasion. And we formed the Kwanzaa Coalition, which is a group of organizations, each of which will take a night of the seven nights, as the um, organization here has done. They've taken a night and they're putting on a Kwanzaa celebration and the Kwanzaa Coalition supports them, helps them make sure they have and know knows everything they need. Now you do it in Schenectady, uh, Albany, Albany and, and Troy. Troy. That's right. right. 
later and they probably want to We probably will spread out more. That's right, that's right. So uh, one of the things that I didn't mention is that it is a seven-day celebration based on the seven principles of Kwanzaa. Uh, We use Swahili words, the language Swahili, which is an African trade language, and we use that to show that we can all communicate with each other and also to honor our roots as Africans, as African Americans. So the seven principles of Kwanzaa is called the Nguzo Saba in Swahili, and each day of Kwanzaa stands for a separate principle. Tonight is the second night of Kwanzaa, and the principle is Kujichagalia, or self-determination. Last night was the first night of Kwanzaa. The principle was Umoja, or unity. And we will go on as the week continues. Why do you think Kwanzaa caught fire. Do you think that's a desire for African people to really know their history and what what or what? Well we had as as African people have been portrayed in many hostile, disrespectful ways. And people who didn't even know us, who didn't even know our history, had negative thoughts about us. And I I imagine that you could talk to any African American and you would hear a story of uh, what had happened where they had been misjudged um, because of the negative assumptions that children have been taught from an early age. Um, these assumptions unfortunately not only affected those who disrespected African Americans, it also affected our own people, so that you found children who felt that they were less than, who heard the message, who would choose a white doll over a black doll, and so on. So I think what happened is that people began to see that Kwanzaa celebrates in a positive way who we are and who we can be and what our potential is for the future and what our past history was that we were not that our history is not just slavery that we had kings and queens and philosophers and you know inventors and all kinds of people worthy of respect and I think that's, that's one aspect. Another aspect is having a celebration that is for African Americans. And it is a, <clears throat> if we, we call each other brothers and sisters, now we want to act like brothers and sisters and get together at least annually and celebrate our relationships with each other and what those relationships can be. So that's another reason that Kwanzaa caught on. It was a time when this positivity was definitely needed. Now, how how do you keep this 
you know, 365 days, how do you keep this going? Because it seems that it kind of just come around, around this time, and then you don't hear no more. It's true. And once a year is a beginning, it's not, it's our goal to learn the principles and base our lives and our interactions on those principles. And we help each other within the Kwanzaa Coalition. We help each other and support each other in doing that. And gradually, I think people will come to see that if it's valuable once a year, it's valuable all year round. Okay. Okay. Nikki, uh, I want to say that my time ran out, but uh, yeah. I, I have a lot of questions that I want to ask you, and I'm sure uh, me and you got to come, come back together and, and, get, and talk about this some more. And, for some love quick. And I want to thank you. Uh, okay? And that's Mickey Khan, who's a member of the Capital Region Kwanzaa Coalition. Thank you. Thank you, Willie Terry. And Mickey Khan is also a regular on this program. We had a wonderful, uh, the sanctuary attended the Kwanzaa event earlier this week on our, uh, on the 27th, I believe it was, in December. And it was really wonderful and we recorded it, but unfortunately a large gymnasium is not ideal for audio. But it was a beautiful presentation at the Boys and Girls Club. Next, we dip into the archive with Bria Barthel and Cheryl McKeon of the Bookhouse discussing novels and other books about food with a list, a list of suggested good reads and eats. Hi, this is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, and I'm back once again at the Bookhouse in Stuyvesant Plaza to talk with Cheryl McKeon, one of the book buyers here, about some books regarding food. So if you haven't eaten yet, this might be a hard one to listen to. Cheryl, welcome back to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you, Bria. It's always a pleasure. We spoke um, around Christmas time and talked about themes, and all I could think about then was chocolate. So uh, that conversation kind of segued into books in which food is a topic but not a food writing book. So it's not like... Um, Anthony Bourdain or Laurie Colwin or MFK Fisher. So these are mainly novels which have food as kind of a main theme. Okay, so what's your first book? Well, the first one that came to mind is a book entitled 800 Grapes by Laura Dave. And this book is partly of interest because Laura Dave is the author of The Last Thing He Told Me, which is a huge success. It's been a bestseller for about two years now. And it's a bit of a mystery. It's a psychological thriller but it has been wildly popular. 800 Grapes was an earlier novel of hers, and it is about a young woman who goes to her family um, vineyard and, and winemaking establishment in Sonoma County when things go a little bit sideways for her in Los Angeles. And it's a charming story in uh, the um, importance of family in our lives, but also it's a terrific overview of grapes and winemaking. And according to her book, uh, a bottle of wine requires 800 grapes. 800 grapes. So I can feel noble drinking wine, knowing that I'm helping to support the regional grape industry. This is true. And this is despite helping to organize on a very small scale for United Farm Workers Union in the 60s. So uh, it's been an adjustment to get back to eating grapes. I still think of them every time I eat a grape. 
But this is a great segue because there is a book that is not a novel that I wanted to talk about at the beginning, and that is a collection entitled Breaking Bread, and it's a collection by a group of New England authors, um, I think 40 of them, Essays from New England on Food, Hunger, and Family. It's a beautiful collection. It includes Richard Ford, Jennifer Finney Boylan, uh, Lee Smith, Richard Russo, of course, one of our favorites, uh, many others, and it's wonderful food essays. And part of the of the uh, profits from this book benefit the Blue Angels, who are dedicated to getting food directly from farmers to families in need in New England. It's a very direct charity. So breaking bread uh, would be a wonderful gift for anybody. It's currently in hardcover until September, so it's a beautiful. It's a beautiful book. So you can do uh, eating local and also reading regional. Absolutely. We love that. That's terrific. So getting back to some novels, most of you probably remember Chocolat by Joanne Harris uh, of, golly, maybe 20 years ago. Kind of a magical realism story about a, a chocolate maker in France. And still a lovely, delightful novel. Another one that's uh, on that order is Ruth Reichel, who, of course, is a beloved food writer, first with Gourmet Magazine and then a number of uh, memoirs that she's written about food. She wrote one novel, Delicious, and that takes place in New York City, and it involves a, a restaurant owner and the people in, um, in her life and the, um, their relationship with food. Another one that is that harks back a while is Nora Ephron's Heartburn. It did become a movie. There's, of course, always controversy about which was better. The book is beautiful. It's Nora Ephron at her best, at her wittiest. It's also self-referential because it is a thinly disguised novel of her marriage to Carl Bernstein. Somehow when I hear Ephron, I think of the, uh, I can't remember if it was Nora or Delia who was the younger one, and they each got a donut, and the older one saved it, and then ate it in front of her younger sister hours later. It seems like the Efren stories never end, much to our uh, benefit. That's, that's a great one. Uh, Heartburn does include recipes, and my husband and I have two recipes from there that we have made for more than 30 years that we just love, and we always think about Nora Efren when we have them. A newer book entitled Love and Saffron is, has just become a paperback. It was a hardcover. Uh, the author of Love and Saffron is Kim Fay. She lives in California, and the story is about a younger woman in Southern California who became pen pals with an older woman in the Puget Sound area near Seattle. The older woman was a, a newspaper journalist, and she had a food column. And the younger woman really was kind of enamored of her, uh, was a huge fan. And their pen pal relationship, which took place in the 40s and 50s in the novel, eventually led to their meeting. It's a lovely story. Also includes recipes. It's lots of fun. It would be a great book club book. When I was finally driving home from Buffalo after Christmas, I heard on a radio station a top whatever number of books from the year, and that was one of the ones they mentioned. It sounds really great. It is. It's, it's uh, doing very well, too, which makes us happy. I want to talk about an author who has three books which are food-related, and I have loved every single one of them. His name is J. Ryan Stradall. I heard that he recently moved to California. I was a bit disappointed because he is a Minnesotan, and uh, his books are, are very much Minnesota-centered. The first one was Kitchens of the Great Midwest. The second one is The Logger Queen of Minnesota. The third one, which comes out in May, I believe, it's not yet released, is Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club. 
All of these involve regional recipes, regional food. Uh, the kind of fish is the fish that one would find in the lakes of Minnesota. And they're also family stories. The Lager Queen of Minnesota is possibly my favorite, and it involves two sisters, one of whom has become very successful and the other who, who really hasn't, and there's a resentment between them. And the one sister who's very successful has actually uh, brewed and marketed a beer. So when I look at his books on the shelf, I think of two things. First of all, rhubarb pie and beer. They're very regional books and terrific stories with great characters. And I take it from how you talked about it that you are from Minnesota? <laughs> I'm from Ohio, but our menus are pretty much the same. <laughs> it's Midwest food. So uh, I recommend those highly. They're, they're great, very, uh, very comforting books, but they're not, um, they're not smarmy. You know, there's conflict and there are problems. But he's a good writer. We can't leave this topic without um, giving um, honor to Ann Tyler, one of the most beloved American writers for many, many years, who has a current bestseller. She really hasn't flagged. And one of her earlier books, if not her first, was Dinner at the Homesick Restaurant. Uh, Ezra is the one who stayed at home, looked after his mom, and he runs a restaurant. He cooks what people are homesick for. Very much an Ann Tyler book, set in Baltimore. <laughs> Uh, and still available. That's a good one. Lynn Cullen uh, has written a number of books. She has a new one coming out, which is not on topic, but I have to mention it's about the woman scientist who actually did discover the cure for polio. That comes out next week, the woman who discovered the cure. But earlier, she wrote a book entitled The Sisters of Summit Avenue. And again, it's a sister story. One of them who has stayed home to run the family farm, has inherited the farm, and faithfully stays there, raises her family. It's a truly a hard scrabble life in the 1930s. Her other sister goes to the city, marries a very successful man, and becomes, get this, a Betty Crocker. There were Betty Crockers who worked for General Foods and responded to letters when people would write in and say, why is my pie crust too crumbly? And they literally would write to a Betty Crocker who would answer their questions. So she had the sweetheart job. And the family conflict is eventually resolved. But it's a great sister story. And I certainly never knew there were real Betty Crockers. Makes me wonder if there's a real Sarah Lee someplace. <laughs> I don't know. Speaking of more baking, since you brought it up, a book from several years ago by Amy Bender is The Particular Sadness of Lemon Cake. And some of you might remember this book because it was a little odd. It was one of those books that people embraced or couldn't, couldn't wrap their heads around, maybe understandably. But a woman has the ability to taste emotion in what someone has baked or cooked. And it starts when she's nine years old. Her mother bakes her a lemon cake, and as she tastes it, she says to herself, my mother is very sad, and there's something, there's something in her life that's really troubling her. And the woman is either blessed or cursed with this her whole life. She can taste emotion in food. Um, so it's a little magical realism. It's a lot magical realism, but is a, I thought it was a delightful story. It's funny that you mentioned that, because as you've been describing these books, I was thinking how closely the food is joined with emotional connection and family connection, which makes sense, since food is at the core, often, of family events and such. That's very true. Maybe that's why I like them so much, because I like the dynamics and the, the family relationships in these stories. The other thing about, I would say, all of these books is, if you're looking for a book club book, and you traditionally eat 
at your meetings, <laughs> all of these would be perfect because you could uh, make an excuse for serving something that you really like that maybe you ordinarily wouldn't serve because it's part of the book. Beer comes to mind. Okay, wine for my book club. So those are all great books, and The Sisters of Summit Avenue is by Lynn Cullen, C-U-L-L-E-N. Before we started recording, you said that some of these may be out of print and not available at the bookhouse? Some of these are a little bit older, and I, I didn't research every one of them because maybe they would be available from the publisher, but it would take a little longer to get. If you're really intrigued by one, we're happy to look it up for you, or um, if we can't get it, you could always find it at your library. Okay, and you could not only look it up but order it. And again, this is Cheryl McKeown at the Bookhouse of Stuyvesant Plaza. And also the Market Block Books in Troy is part of the, the uh, Bookhouse group. Absolutely. We're <laughs> sisters. Yes. <laughs> okay. And anything else you want to say to wrap up? Um, thank you again. And it's happy to, um, I'm happy to share this time with you. And I thought midwinter was a good time to think about food and, and uh, gatherings. Thanks a lot. This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, uh, signing off. And Bria will be back again with more books for us to enjoy. And next, I speak with Robert Cooper. This is Sina Bazila Hickey, and I'm here with my comrade photographer, Robert Cooper. How are you? Hello. <laughs> so around your neck, you have your film camera. And so I would love to talk with you about film photography. Okay. For our listeners who may not know you, could you just introduce yourself first? My name is Robert Cooper. I am a photographer and a journalist with about 15 plus years of experience. I'm a Sagittarius. <laughs> I mean. And you shoot with film photography. You you shoot digital and film photography. Yes, I do. Mm -hmm. Being also somewhat of a film photographer myself, there's often the question, why shoot with film when it's expensive? You get a certain amount of, of frames. So, um, you know, in this time when we have phones, why do you still choose to shoot film photography? Well, the reason that I choose to f shoot film and a lot of people choose to shoot film is because it really makes you hone in on your photographic skills. Like when you shoot digitally and with your phone, you can shoot a million pictures and you can look at the photos inside your camera and just adjust to make the uh, photos look the way that you want to look. You can correct, you know, exposure and all that other stuff whereas with the film camera you have no idea what you just shot and you're just hoping that because of your photographic skills that the uh the picture is going to come out looking the way that you want it to look and the surprise you get once the film is developed and you see the results is always you know it's like christmas every time you get a you know a new roll of film and you see it developed it's like, oh, this is what I took. Oh, this is what it looks like. I mean, I know they have a whole bunch of different, you know, apps and, you know, filters that you can use to get that film look, but you might as well just shoot the film and, and, and you know, get the original look. And that's the, the, what a lot of people are into is that look of film. And you use different films to get different aesthetics, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, how do you go about choosing which uh, look you want 
What's that process like for you? Well, I'll be honest with you. A lot of people who shoot film who are really heavy into film, they like certain films, the the professional grade films like the Portras, the Ilfords, uh, HP5, and and all that stuff. Me personally. I will shoot any damn roll of film. I am quick to go to CVS and get a three pack of that cheap Fuji film and use that. And a lot of them, I mean, I'm not gonna call them elitist, but they they frown upon things of that nature. But I'm like, if you want, if you're shooting film, you know, the whole point is to have that film look. I don't want to shoot a film that damn near looks like it's a digital photo. The whole point is to make it, you know, have that film look. I prefer using, um, for color, I'll use anything because, you know, I like the Fuji film from, like I said, CVS. But also for black and white, I like a high contrast black and white. I like a lot of contrast in my black and white. So Mm -hmm. what I found was, there's a uh, YouTuber named Japan Camera Hunter, and he goes to Japan and looks for, you know, he, he he picks up rare film cameras and other kind of film cameras. He has a uh, film, it's a black and white film, and I really like that because it's very high contrasty. So I use that. I use so I also use a cheap film called Kent Mirror 400. And of course, I'll shoot the Ilford HP5 and what's the other one? The, the, the Kodak one, the black and white one. Oh, um, can't think of it right now. Yeah, I'll shoot that. And we're not endorsing any of these. We're just talking yeah. about, yeah, some, some of the films in, our, in the yeah. rotation. I don't shoot portrait that often. It's expensive and I don't see the point of <laughs> spending that much money, much more money when I just can use the the cheap Fuji film. Right. So there's the the buying of the film and then there's the payment for the process of it. And then if you want it scanned, if you don't have your own scanner. So there is, it's more intensive. So mm-hmm. you do also shoot with digital or mm-hmm. photograph with digital. How do you choose which camera you want to use, which which format you want to use for which project? Well, if it's a paid gig, I'm using digital. <laughs> because you can take more photographs? Or? Yeah, and plus, you know, the people that pay me to take photos really don't care about using film. So it's like, yeah, they, they're going to be like, why are you shooting with that film camera? So paid gigs is digital. But when it's stuff that is for myself, um, projects that I'm working on, or, you know, I just want to create something that that's, you know, artistic, most of the time, I'm going to choose my film camera, and I have about eight of them to choose from, especially like when it comes to if I'm just walking around and taking some street stuff, I would prefer to have my uh, film camera. So for listeners who may not be photographers, don't use film, what is a way to connect with the subject matter if it's not already in their repertoire? What is something that you think draws new people into film photography? Um, I think the uh, the fact that digital, like I said, is so easy to do. You know, everybody thinks they could pick up a camera and start shooting, which is the problem with a lot of these digital cameras and all the 
technological advances we have with photography is it's making it so easy for you to just pick up a camera and just point and it shoots and damn near the camera might take the photo by itself. Whereas film is, it takes you back to a a time and place where, you know, only certain people can do this. <laughs> so you really have to hone in on your photographic skills and make sure that you have the, uh, the foundations in place. So I think that's what draws a lot of people into it so they can do something that not everybody else can do. Point, um, one-time use cameras still exist and... Yeah, they do. And also, um, the cameras that we use do have automatic functions. So I wouldn't say there's so much of a barrier for new people, but to do it to a certain level of expertise does take some thought and mm. practice. Yeah, but... So I would say, I would argue that, uh, don't you think that film photography is also very accessible? Nah. <laughs> If you want a disposable camera, yes, but the mindset of of majority of the people is is a and just a ancient way of taking photos. So you really have to want to have that film look to pick up one of these disposable cameras. And there's some people who do it like, yeah, it's cool and fun, it's cute, but for the most part, people, you know, are, are picking up these disposable cameras. Because it's challenging. I've seen uh, a person made a photography zine using nothing but a uh, disposable camera, you know, because it's challenging. And uh, the the zine came out looking perfect. It looked great. But um, I don't think that not everybody can just pick up a, a film camera and, and start shooting because you still have to know that, know about ISO and know about taking photos at night and just because you have a disposable camera and it's got that flash on it, it's going to give it a different look at night. And you may not like that look. You may not know how to use that look to your advantage. Whereas a seasoned photographer who understands that, you know, okay, only the subject within a certain distance is going to be lit and the rest of it is going to be dark as hell. will you know, understand that and use it to their advantage. Robert Cooper, it's been a pleasure to talk with you about photography. I know that you are really big into photo books, so I'd love to leave our listeners with, uh, could you recommend a film photographer that is inspiring you that perhaps listeners who are interested in looking into film photography could look up and maybe get inspired by their work? Well, for me... um this person, the person that most inspires my photography, just passed away recently. His name was Kwame Brathwaite. I would, I mean, I would consider him a film photographer because, you know, that's what he used. <laughs> when he was, there was no digital cameras, you know, in his day. So um, that is the one photographer I would say to, to look up is Kwame Brathwaite. He just passed away. So may he rest in peace. So check out his work if you can. Thank you so much for joining me. You are welcome. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. And I'm Vinny Donopolito. Thanks to our volunteers, Mark Dunley, Willie Terry, Bria Barthel, and Elizabeth E.P. Press. We appreciate you listening. Until next time.